I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. A podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Living History UK podcast. And what a treat you've got in store today. Not only have you got me, you've got Danny and Pete also joining me on the podcast, and we're going to be answering questions that have been sent in from you guys, the listeners. So without further ado, the first question we've had in has come from Charlie Tooley, who we uh, met at last year's Victory Show, and I'm sure we're going to see him again this year. Um, A fantastic up-and-coming living historian and huge uh, fan of the channel and podcast to boot. And his question is, and I'm going to direct this straight to you, Danny. What do you think gets people into living history? And how do people who aren't interested end up becoming interested in the hobby? Well, it's, I think that way, if you look at that question, you can kind of look at it as two angles. I got into it because, A, the love of history and the starting of collecting. And I think it's those who look at it from the practical side of looking at history and then saying, well, how, actually, how did they do these things? So that, that's how I see it. And also, we want to take it to the next step, especially with events and uh, collector societies, etc. So that's, that's how I see it from. How about you, Pete? Yeah, I've never been much of a collector, for say. Um, like I have got original items and that, but I've never really been a collector. So the angle I came in from it was just a lover of history from a very young age and then uh, found out about living history, went to an event, um, thought it was brilliant what these people were doing, and I wanted to be part of it to share the knowledge. Um, and that's that that's how I got into it. And so uh yeah, I think I think a lot of people's paths can be very similar, but also very different at the same time to why and how, I think. I think there's a myriad of different avenues that people come into this incredibly amazing hobby. 
I think you've touched on a couple of them already. And I think one of the main routes specifically from a personal viewpoint, but also from uh, speaking on behalf of many people who get involved in living history is from TV and film and from literature as well. You know, having grown up in the 90s with the uh, the sharp series on the TV, as I've mentioned a few times, that really got me interested in history before the internet, of course. Um but, you know, with series like Band of Brothers, um, you know, SAS Rogue Heroes more recently, and I'm sure Masters of the Air next, next year, or even this year, one of the two anyway, uh, that's going to be, you know, really opening a door for people to to start exploring the world of living history. And uh, so so long may it continue as well, because it's a fantastic way for people to see what that bit of history is like and to give them a bit of a flavour and to ultimately bring that bit of history to life. Yeah, I fully agree there. It's 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 a fantastic hobby. And anyone who's listening who's tempted to get involved or uh, give it a please get along to events or chat to groups to take your interest. You know, I just come back from the Capital Show and you see those young people who are obviously getting interested in the hobby. They're going around the stalls with a bit of with a bit of pocket money and they bought their first helmet of unknown origin, a webbing of spurious origins. And they're, they're getting into the the vibe of it, so to speak, of the hobby. But they'll naturally fall into their rut of interest, so to speak. And then, then you finally get your passion, I think. Um, so moving on, the next question from Finley Purchase, or Purchase, or uh, pronounce your surname. The question is, what's the story behind you three's interest in history and living history in general? Um, well, so my, like, like I've already sort of answered the question really before. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so my actual interest came from watching war films that that's how it all originally started because obviously we're of the generation where they still had like the sunday afternoon war film from the 1950s or the 60s um and then from that uh my gran introduced me to dad's army and then as I got a lot older, maybe 10, 11 years old, I actually then had that realisation that although some of these films aren't true to life, they're actually based on real events. So like Dad's Army, you know, there was a home guard, um, things like that. Or you've got the films like A Bridge Too Far where there is actual fact in there and they're actually real, you know, portraying real people. And that's what then spurred me on from that age to start sort of researching it, started reading books, watching documentaries and things like that. And that, that's how it all spurred for myself. And I think just to come in on, build on that really from my sort of viewpoint, like I mentioned, you know, watching watching Sharp in the 90s for Napoleonic, but then sitting and watching A Bridge Too Far on VHS with my dad was, you know, was a memory, you know, I'll always remember that got me interested in the Second World War. And that segued very neatly into hearing about, well, at that point, my granddad's exploits. And I say that because when I was a child, I was always told that my granddad was at Dunkirk in the Second World War and he did all these you know, sort of, uh, not feats of heroism, but went through, you know, the withdrawal from Dunkirk and saw out the war in, in Italy ultimately. But having wanted to get a flavour of what life might have been like for him during the Second World War, that led me into living history, but then led me into the realms of research as well. I'm subsequently finding out that he wasn't even at Dunkirk. He was actually... Um, you know, evacuated from uh, the Brest Channel ports during Operation Arrow, which is even cooler, really. But I think, yeah, it's those two main routes for me, definitely the family history, and then also coupled with, you know, having that sort of uh, flavour and excitement of what that period, specific period of history would have been like, having seen it 
through uh, TV dramas and through uh, through film also. I think it's our generation as well that as, as children, we were up in the woods playing with stick guns and jumping off walls and building dens and wearing a random helmet up in the woods. And especially, you know, I know for myself, I was a, I was a cadet back in the days and, of course, loving all, all things green and mean and falling into the military way of life, so to speak, and enjoyment of enjoyment of wearing uniform then looking into the history behind it so to speak yeah and i'm sure you two are going to completely agree with this as well because i've had an amazing memory come back but how cool was it as a child to go into like the old like, army and navy stores when you got all this surplus kit ki- ki- kicking around and you can still think of it and still smell it now and i remember a fantastic shop in Col- uh, colesville near where i used to live uh, there's a little uh, army surplus store on the corner. And, you know, seeing all that green kit, like you mentioned, how cool it was. We used to buy all that kit, me and my mates did, and run around the fields, you know, playing armies. So I think, really, you kind of never grow out of it, do you? No. That was, yeah, that, that was my that was like my Saturday morning treat when I used to go downtown with mum and dad. Um, if I behaved myself, I was allowed to go and have a look in the army surplus if I behaved myself around town. <laughs> so that was a very rare occasion. I was, I, was yeah. never allowed, I was never allowed to buy anything or they never bought me anything. I was just allowed to go and look at things. <laughs> so that things never change. <laughs> you're that awkward customer who just sat there and looked at things. And I think back in, especially when I was younger as well, you could fill our local army surplus called Shepherds in Herefordshire. You could fill a large pack with 37 pound webbing for a fiver and you can fill it you have a set of webbing and you just like trash it and we use it up the woods and throw it away but now you think look at it look you look back now 20 i don't know no 30 nearly 30 years later going cool i wish i'd kept some of that stuff yeah it's um yeah when you actually cast your mind back on some of this kit you're like i used to roll around in that stuff but now it's worth a bloody fortune in some aspects so our next question comes from Joe Davis. And their question is, what's the best memory you all share together? So what do we share is our best memory? Well, there is as, a few. As as the three of us. Uh, well, I mean, I could only speak for myself, but I mean, we do share some pretty cool memories. I think one of the memories that comes to mind, arguably not the best, is when we kind of uh well danny got his jeep sorted and we all started getting our kit together for the sas we rocked up at the victory show and like it just felt really really good that was a nice sort of feeling that was a good memory but i almost pushed the boat out and say they've already had one you've already had one yeah that was a secondary that was a secondary um but yeah i'd I'd say my my favorite memory is is when we pulled off this year's um Live History UK Festival. We just kind of everything was the stage was set, the punters were coming in, everything was working just about, and everything was where it should be. And we all just kind of like looked at each other. And we were like, "Yeah, this is it. This is cool." You know, that was a, that was a real sense of achievement and fulfilment as well. Daniel, well, I think my greatest memory is Peter making the bruise at Victory Show because I've always hold that dear to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pleasure to serve, Danny. It's a pleasure to serve. Your fine coffee goodness woke me up many a morning. <laughs> I do, I do make a good coffee. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's uh, uh, my great grace. It's very hard to pick out one, but I'd have to say, in the mornings of the victory show, Saturday or Sunday, regardless, I, we're all getting up, we're all waking up, and we got that 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 spirit of a group of chaps all together, all in the same situation, we're all mucking in. 
we're trying to put a display well we put a display on our best you know and it's just we're all we're, we're as one entity so to speak it's not we're not we're not bound by the ties of the internet we're not separated by hundreds of miles we're all in the same we're all in the same boat mm. we're all getting on that's that's what i love about it the most and of course we have pete neil's exploits at beefy boys almost <laughs> one year to the day that was a pretty good memory but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. probably the best memory for you though pete but no uh, it wasn't <laughs> i was in a bad way after that i was in a bad way Is that um, yeah oh my legs hurt yeah so that, that actually leads me very nicely onto my favourite memory of the three of us when we actually made it to the top of Penny Fan and not going up the tourist route. <laughs> so because we didn't go up the tourist route, we went up the hard way. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the uh, one of the best moments of the three of us together. I think was uh, getting to the very top, and it was a really clear day, and you could see for miles and miles. Yeah, that, and I think, to be honest, that was a nice, fulfilling feeling as well, not just reaching the top, but just kind of realising how much money we'd raised for such a good charity as well. And I think, really, we ought to do something this year, but that's something for the planning uh, sort of uh, room, I think, and on, on another uh, podcast maybe. But yeah. we'll move on to the next question, and this comes from Dan Veteran over on TikTok, uh, one of the uh, veterans who came and supported the festival early this year, a top, top bloke. And his question is, how did you guys all meet? And what has been your biggest and toughest challenge to date? Danny, floor is yours. Well, I think the way we met, we've, we've known each other in a hobby I know, I've, I've known. I've had the pleasure of knowing Peter for many a year, <laughs> but, but um, I think it's, it, it for me. I came basically out of World War Two retirement, so to speak, after seeing you know the actions of Living History UK starting up and actually the positivity around the scene, not just turning up to a railway event, doing line dancing, actually doing proper living history. So that's that's how I came. I came in as a bit of a a late comer, so to speak, out of retirement. Um, the biggest, toughest, and challenging um, challenge to date. I think it's 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 always the week or so before the festival when we're all trying, or the event or whatever we're organising, trying to get everything squared away. I think there's no specifically big one, specifically massive big challenge we've come across and stumbled stumble block. It's always the the time before an event where we've got to make sure everyone's coming, vehicles are coming, people got their paperwork, we've got trailers hired, we've got accommodation sorted so that's where i see it from really we never face one massive challenge we always face lots of little ones but we always overcome it yeah we do um so i'm going to start off with danny because i've known danny the longest out of the pair of you so i knew danny pre-world war ii retirement <laughs> <laughs> um so we first met where so i would have been with jom so that was just ordinary men at the time doing first airborne recce. Um, so that would have been round about 2007, maybe 2008 at a push. Because I think you was knocking around with the field ambulance lot, weren't you, at the time? Yeah, Kenny Morland, 16 parachute field ambulance. That's with it, yeah. Captain, Captain TikTok himself, Dickie. Yeah. <laughs> That's when we used to meet on the thing called the Posse Forum. We didn't have Facebook. 
I know. Yeah, we do often talk about that, don't we? <laughs> like how, how things have changed with the aid of technology. Like, we'll talk about, like, when you'd get the group letter yeah, <laughs> get sent out to you and things like that. But now it's just all done in, a, like, a Facebook message or a WhatsApp. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that's how I met Danny. That's how we crossed paths. Um all those many years ago, originally. Uh, and with Steve, I met Steve in 2015. Yes, it was 2015. So what happened was, is that I wanted a inert Baker rifle to go on the top of my fireplace, because who wouldn't? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I posted it on my group page, the group I was with, oh, still with them, uh, the Rifles Living History Society during First World War. And suddenly I get this message come through going, hi, how are you doing? Um, I'm from Reenactment Supplies and uh, I do sell inner bakers. And I'm like, okay, sound. Well, then we start obviously chatting away. And then he goes, uh, do you, uh, you know, you know, have you, you thought much about Napoleonic stuff? I'm like, oh, I said, I'd love to do Napoleonic, but I've never found a gateway into it if you know what i mean but the uh but i've just i've heard like from people who were in it like how expensive it is and all the rest of it so i just never done it and he goes oh yeah but i also see you play a bugle as well now i'm in a group called the fifth 60th and we have an opening for a bugler <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to join us i'm like oh, i don't know oh, i've got to get all the kit and i know it's all right we have group kit we can kit you out for a day uh, and then that was it. I agreed to go to one of the training days, which I think was literally like a month or two later after that, because they just got back from Waterloo 200, like quite literally just got back from Waterloo 200. Um, and then that was it. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. So since 2015, Stevens had the honour of knowing me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I have indeed, yes. The, the the pleasure or some might say misfortune, but no, definitely, <laughs> definitely a pleasure. It's um yeah, I mean there's no point me going over old ground, you know, that Pete's obviously explained um, you know, how how we've sort of met. I mean, I kind of recognised Danny from the scene, the circuit, I should probably say. That's a better way to describe it. Um <laughs> the living history scene, that is. Uh, nothing else. Um <laughs> and yeah, kind of through uh, Jake Brown, you know, sort of turning up on um you know, sort of uh, TikTok, we kind of like, had mutual friends and, and yeah, rest is history. But I think the kind of the biggest challenge really that on from a personal point of view, I sort of face now is the kind of strain to, you know, consistently get um, content out. Really. Mm. I find that, I find it quite hard to find a time to do it nowadays. You know, when I set up the whole of an history UK venture had a lot of time on my hands, we were, you know, going through COVID of course, um, but it's, it's it's hard to keep that impetus up now because obviously it's not our not our jobs. We don't do it full time. It's we're doing our spare time. But uh, I think that's really you know sort of the the toughest like ongoing challenge is just to you know continuously get content out there. I just realised I didn't do my challenge. Quite correct. So Peter, <laughs> what is the toughest challenge you've faced to date so far? Get up in the morning. <laughs> No, um, there, there, there's a couple um, that spring to mind, and you brought up a very good one, Steve. Uh, getting content out because that is that is a challenge. Like when you sat there, like 
sat there tapping your fingers going, oh, what do I do next to put on the TikTok or something like that? And I was like, oh. And then it's like that pressure of people going, oh, you ain't posted for a long time. Yeah, because I've got a life. <laughs> but um, challenge, I've got two, but I'll go with this one. Um, I'd say doing Christmas truce um, in minus temperatures. That I'd say that that that's a bit of a challenge in itself because that's sort of going sort of knee deep into living history, and you're learning a lot from it. But in that in those conditions, things could go quite drastically wrong <laughs> if you don't do it right. Because uh, I think the well, last truce we we're at, it went down to minus three, I think it was, and we we're outside, we we're outside in a trench in minus three, um, out on uh, Prowse Point. So we're actually on the ground where the blokes were at Christmas Eve. So I think that was that's that's a challenge. Um, but yeah, I, that yeah that, that that's what I'd say my challenge is. I've got a couple, but I think that one's a nice one. <laughs> Not many people can say I've done living history at minus three. <laughs> so our next question comes in from our longtime supporter over on TikTok. Under his code name of Wood Muffin. So his question he poses to us is Favorite wartime story of individuals, either heroic or funny? And I'm going to pose that to Stephen. Oh, it's, um, that's, a, that's, I don't know, it's a tough one. Um, I don't, it's quite hard, hard to find a funny war story, I think, really. I think thinking of Jack Churchill going ashore with, like, you know, sort of, um, like a bow and sword and all that. That's that's like different, let's say. When they say it's funny. But I think down the heroic route, I would go for I would say for Baskerfield at Arnhem. Um being, you know, severely wounded, man in a six pounder, taking down you know several German armoured vehicles. I mean that is just true heroism for which he was awarded, of course, the Victoria Cross. And I think that's one of many stories that I, I could come up with, and I'm sure you guys will touch on, but that's one that always uh, sort of you know strikes a chord with me because it's a local guy to you know where I live, local regiment museum. Seen his his VC, met his family actually as well. They came to the museum, uh, very very proud of their um, sort of. Uh, I think it was a great grandson who came, so it'd be obviously grandfather's exploits, and uh, yeah, Baskerfield and his VC at Arnhem. Um, and I mean, you could throw Kane in there as well, but that's that's the most sort of heroic. War story, manning those six, the six pounders, taking out you know vehicle after vehicle, almost single handedly, whilst being well mortally wounded. So yeah, that's that's the one I'll come up with for most heroic. I would go with, um, so my main one, I suppose, so like go for like, acts of heroism is this uh, for, uh, assault on Pegasus Bridge because I think the story of the assault on Pegasus Bridge by uh, John Howard and his men was absolutely breathtaking, especially, you know, they took the bridge in 15 minutes, but then they held it for over 24 hours and all the little stories um, of the individual actions and that, that was taking place on the bridge as well. And if that, you know, if they hadn't have done that, D-Day wouldn't have happened um, because 21st Panzer would have got their tanks over the bridges and uh, that would, <laughs> it would have all been for nothing. But my main, but my actual story I've got is more of a personal one because obviously doing what we do and being the generation that we are, we were very fortunate 
to speak to World War II veterans. And, you know, it, it's a shame that we never got to put all of it on, you know, onto cassette, really, because uh, all we've got now is their, what they told us in our minds. So they're just literally just a living memory now. But my, uh, I refer to my old mate, Freddie. Uh, so Freddie was in the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry. He was in the 2nd Battalion. He was airborne. And he told me no ends of, no end of stories. Uh, funny, horrific, all sorts. He, he didn't leave no page unturned, bless him. But there's one story that, that, that springs to mind is I think he said they were in Germany. I think they were, I want to say Germany. And... Uh, They'd been they'd been on a roll for about three days, and his uh, command officer walked up to him. He said, "Right, you and your men, because uh, he was he was a uh, he was a platoon sergeant. He was. He said, right, you you and your lads um, need to go and get your heads down, because uh, they they were part of um, oh, what was it defence HQ defence? They were they were part of a Polston crew. Uh, and he goes, right, you and your lads need to need to have a rest. You've like you've been on you've been on the roll for three days. So there's a hotel down the road. Get yourselves in that hotel and get your heads down for a bit. We're we're being uh, leapfrogged now anyway. So what I mean by leapfrog is is that the glider borne lads have now halted and the paras were taken over. So used to working like a leapfrog. So it'd be glider born, then the paras, glider born, paras. That's basically how they kind of operated. So uh, they get into this hotel and he spoke to his mate, Ozzy. Uh, obviously, this bloke was called Osborne. But he said he, he said Ozzy was always a bit of a rogue. And uh, he said we walked into this place. It had been stripped bare. And he goes, he goes, yeah, you know what, Freddie? I reckon uh, we might we might find some booze around here. He goes, oh, don't be. He's like, no, don't, don't, don't be stupid. Like, you can see the place has been absolutely ransacked there's like there's nothing it's like we're lucky there's a carpet so um but his mate disappeared and they all started getting their heads down and ozzy came back he goes here freddie you want to come have a look at this mate and he goes oh come on all right he goes well, i'll just humored him so they came into this like main hallway and he banged his foot on the floor and he goes yeah that he goes yes uh it's a wooden floor he goes ah but now listen to this and he moved his foot about he yeah, moved his foot about a foot to the other side, done it again. He goes, solo. He goes, oh, for crying out loud. So I lifted up this carpet. There's this trap door there. Open up the trap door. They go down into it. None of the booze from the hotel had been touched. No one had even thought about looking for this trap door. And there was, he said there was champagne, cognacs, all sorts in there. Even cigars. There was even like a Thermidor room in this in this cellar with like stacks and stacks and stacks of cigars. So they grabbed all this booze together. They go, hang on a minute. The paras are moving up the line. So we'll throw a few at them while they're moving up the line. So he said, we moved up to the uh, next story up. We said, we had all these crates of um, whiskey, champagne, all sorts, you name it. We, we had it. And as the paras are moving up to take over on the line, he said, we're like whistling up to them, uh, whistling down to them. They're looking up and they're dropping bottles on top. Um, and they're grabbing them and then stuffing them into their smocks as they move up the uh, up the line. But then with the cigars, uh, his driver, Careless, they called him Careless because he overturned a, a Jeep on Salisbury Plain. 
But uh, careless, yeah, he had he he walked out of about ten boxes of cigars, and they're like proper, like big fat Cuban ones. He said he walked out of these ten boxes, threw them in the back of the jeep, and Freddie goes, "What do you think you're going to do with them?" He's, like, "I'm going to smoke them, aren't I, Freddie? What do you think? <laughs> what do you think I'm going to do with them?" <laughs> and he said that was it. He said, "And careless, rest rest of the war." He was like like an American with this great big cigar hanging out of his mouth while he's driving his bloody jeep along. So yeah, so that's uh, that's my amusing story. <laughs> I think when I look at it, funny stories. They're not really funny, but this is quite a funny, a, a, a twin-edged sword type funny story. Where, especially with POWs, um, one story of one guy receiving mail from home in a prisoner of war camp, and part of it was his gas bill. Um, and another one who came home after five years, he walked into his local pub, and the bloke turned around to him and said, "Oh, where have you been then?" So it's not really funny, but it's the sad side of it. There's all sorts, there's all various funny escapades you hear, especially with, especially on battalion level. And when you read the officer's fine book in the Herefordshire Regimental Museum, there's always things where such and such an officer has been found indecent with a goat, fined two weeks' pay, and stuff like that. So there's always quite little quirks like that. But most, I'd say the most, well, I'd say it's my heroic wartime story. I'm going to play a bit of a Joker card here and say, well, because Woodmuffing has not said specifically which war it is, I'm going to play uh, going back to the dark days of 1972 when the SAS were out in uh, out in the Oman during the Battle of Murbat and the, the man who should have got the VC, Sergeant Labba Labba, um, his, if you've never heard of the, the story of the Fijian uh, SAS Sergeant Labba Labba, please, please go and read it now. The man is a hero and should have got the Victoria Cross but because the Battle of Murbat and the SAS training team who were out there at the time was a secret war, an advisory war, an advisor's war, shall we say. He never got the VC, but the man was an absolute hero. He'd been shot several times. He operated a 25-pounder field gun on his own, which is normally a four-man crew, and he held back over 400 um, in, well, insurgents, as we call them nowadays, uh, single-handedly. So... That's that's the that's the one story I always take from me. I take I always take as probably the most heroic story never really um recognized. But hopefully we can get him a VC one day. Yeah, it's always annoying when you hear about these heroic acts where these blokes should have got a Victoria Cross and it never and they, and it never amounted to anything. Um and when it should you know, when it should do, which um, but unfortunately we, there's nothing we can do about it, unfortunately. But yeah, it is it is very annoying, especially when you read about some of these blokes and what they've done. You're thinking that bloke should have got a VC, not you know, not a, like a mention in dispatches or something like that. So next question is, so this is from a Dutch viewer called. I'm probably going to pronounce this very wrongly now. <laughs> Hello. That's that's what it's bracketed out. That's how it's written down as is Allo. 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 Oh, Allo. Well, it won't be being now if it's Allo, wouldn't it? Allo, Allo. 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 Halo. Halo. That, yeah, that sounds better, isn't it? Halo. High altitude, low opening. Sorry? High altitude, low opening. Halo. Uh, uh, oh, there's two L's. There's two L's in it. But anyway. <laughs> So if I've mispronounced your name, I do apologise. So their question is, I'm Dutch and I have the discussion a lot with people, but 
Is the invasion of England by William of Orange seen as a duck, 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 a Dutch occupation of England? Oh, well, that's a good question, isn't it? That's something that doesn't get spoken about very often. So who would who would like to take the floor first with this? This one, I like this one. I do like this one. (laughs) I'm definitely going to have to uh, have a little chomp on this one. It's um, it's a brilliant question, and you are right, Pete. It doesn't get talked about often enough. I think the glorious revolution, which is of course what what was alluded to in the question, is not necessarily an occupation, but is certainly an invasion, and it, it is really the last successful invasion of these isles. There's no doubt about it. It's um, okay. Let's be honest. There was a leading number of Protestants, Puritans at that time, who invited William of Orange and his wife over um, to to sit on the throne, and they uh, got rid of James. And the reason is because it was it was Catholic. They didn't want a Catholic on the throne. You have to remember as well. This is the latter half of the 17th century. We're only you know upwards of 30 to 40 years after the wars of the three kingdoms and how much turmoil that brought about we lost the monarchy we took the head of a monarch clean off um had the interregnum for a while obviously for about nine years ten years and then we ended up with another monarch which looked completely different to the monarch we had before so on comes james ii he's catholic he's not particularly liked by the people mainly because he's catholic and it's a protestant country uh, so they start looking elsewhere, and you know, James pretty much abdicated the throne. You know, he, he fled London, and then the uh, state-sponsored invasion is probably the easiest way of saying it of William of Orange. Um, you know, came came over with thousands of troops, Dutch troops and French troops as well. And uh, yeah, but is it an occupation? Maybe in the first few weeks, but the people seem to have been behind it, and so were the leading politicians. I wouldn't say it was an occupation. I'd say it was exactly what we call it now, a glorious revolution. Danny. Can I pass go and not collect £200, please? <laughs> no, you must answer. <laughs> pass, I do want to collect. No, I, I won't go. I, I, I'm going to have to pass, unfortunately, because this is, this is slightly before my sphere of influence, shall we say. So any comment I make on it will probably not be justified or within historical fact. Well, it's it's say what you think, mate. Say what you think. I don't know. Right, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'll 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 go straight. Well, um, on this occasion, Dave, we'll let you pass go on this one occasion. <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree with Steve. Um, I don't I I don't see it as an I don't think it's an occupation. It's it's not really taught in schools over here. Um, they get taught, I think, from vivid memory. We were told that William Orange came to England and took the throne, uh, and that was it. But um, I, th- I think for us, it was, um, yeah, yes, it was an invasion. But like Steve said, it was a funded invasion. It was it. They wanted it to happen because it was either that or have a Catholic king and being the time that they're living in you cannot have a catholic king on the throne of england when the you know the the monarch is you know he's meant to be the head of the protestant church so 
obviously if if you're Irish and Scottish, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be a very different story, but definitely in England, it was much welcomed and, you know, it, it, it wasn't an occupation. It was, um, it was, it, you know, it, it, it was wanted, I think is my answer. And it, it's a magnificent slice of history. You know, we don't talk about some of these, like the, the English of Wars, we don't really talk about them enough, really. I mean, that should definitely be taught in school. That's where we have that turning point of modern democracy, where we had, you know, we were a republic. That's crazy to think that, really, with the coronation issue and so forth. But yeah, the Glorious Revolution, late 17th century, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, my knowledge isn't magnificent on it. It's been a few years since I've brushed up on it, but it's definitely something we should de- dedicate a whole podcast episode to, I think, because it is really, really fascinating. And it is the last successful invasion of the British mm. Isles. He's a very it. interesting bloke as well. He's a very good soldier as well. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and of course, you know, kind of that period started laying the seeds for the you know, the, the Navy becoming the power it was going to be, um, you know, around the world trade, the, the empire, and also the army, because John Churchill, um, famous general, you know. Well, he made great, Churchill. Well, yeah, he, he ultimately was one of the <laughs> making Winston Churchill, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, John Churchill was one of the, the generals who was quite influentially, he um, stepped away from, um, you know, King James II at the time and sided with William of Orange, which was quite notable. So there's some key players in there, some great stories to come out with. And the actual, the seal of, of uh, England, the Grand Seal, James actually threw that in the River Thames as he he left London, which is quite mad to think, really. Uh, almost almost mimicking the scenes of the start of the the first civil war in the early 1640s when you know Charles I fled London and took the seal with him to York. Um, so you can almost appreciate with that short amount of time, people's living memory was there, where you know, well, we could have another civil war on our hands here. We don't really want that. Let's uh, look at doing this a different way. So let's uh, casually invite someone to become king and cut out what happens in between. Um, but yes, the next and question. Es- and especially having a plague afterwards as well. Like, well not only yeah. you had like, that huge death rate from the Civil War, you then mm. had that plague that decimated the country as well. So, you know, mm. in that way, from population-wise, the, the country's on its knees. So you can't, mm. you couldn't, couldn't have a Civil War. Yep, Great Fire of London as well, post-Civil yeah. War, pre-Glorious Revolution. You know, a lot goes on in, in that period of history. It is almost spellbinding. Um, but yeah, the next question we've got is um, probably links in with this one, to be honest, but we'll see where we go with it. So this is sent in by a good friend of ours, Mel. Uh, he listens to podcasts on a frequent uh, basis, living his story in himself. Uh, we've done events with him in the past. Um but yeah, Mel, you are a legend. So if you're listening, we all think you're a legend. And thanks for the question. And the question is, I've built you up here, haven't I? I built you up. It's what time period in military history is most misrepresented, e.g. what people think or have been taught? Danny, I know you didn't get a chance to shine on the last, last question. So the floor is yours. Which period in military history is most misrepresented? I'm going to turn around and say especially within the living history world, it's the home front. I know it's probably not the most glamorous of things that have been misrepresented, but I think a lot. Of, when you go to a lot of the steam railways class yeah, events and living history events, the the, 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 yeah, the the home guard gets this horrible tarring with dad's army-ism. 
every, you know, every, every member of the home guard was a, was a was a bumbling old old fart who didn't couldn't do much, didn't know much, and was there for the comedy factor. Whereas home guard at its strength was a very professional home army, and we had you can look at the 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 association with the auxiliaries, you know, and the other home home, home defense units like the ARP. These were very. Yeah, again, again, a lot of these guys were great war veterans and, and ladies as well, and they wanted to do their part and they did it as professionally as possible. And I think, sadly, it is largely misrepresented within the living history community. That's a very good one, that is, Daniel, I have to say. Thank uh, you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brains here and I just can't think of a per- career, never see it. With the boys never... doing Malaya at the festival. Yeah, you had lads doing Malaya, but you never see people doing Korea, though, do you? Korea mm. is very mis- misrepresented. You, you might get the odd person walking around dressed up as, yeah, like a 1950s national serviceman, but actually a group doing Korea, you, it's very, very rare. I don't think I've ever seen it. I think I've seen some people doing American in Korea once or twice. But actually, British in uh, in Korea, I've never seen it. So my my one goes with Korea because that's a very forgotten war, very forgotten conflict. Both very very good choices. I particularly like the World War Two one because we have this. I, I do still after what fifteen years of this, I just don't get the whole obsession with line dancing and things like that at World War Two events. I just don't. I don't get that. It's it's really strange. It's not living history. It's not even reenactment. It's just you know very odd. It's like a fancy dress party, but whatever. I, but I think specific period. I don't think I can narrow it down to. But I think what is generally misrepresented is just the typical soldier, like the typical private soldier. Whether it's I don't know the First World War soldier or you know Second World War soldier or, or just any private soldier of the British Army. There's very it's very rare. Uh, with the exception of Living History UK Festival, of course, has to be said, that you see that standard, that bog standard impression done well, um, especially at a campaigning soldier. It's very rare to see someone, um, partic- yeah, particularly in the English Civil War, having done an event the weekend, although I'll touch on that shortly, that you don't see a soldier just like kind of um, having very little kit with him or just very practical kit, looking a little bit ragged, you know, living in, you know, the sort of boughs of trees or, or hedges authentically. You can't, we kind of miss that. And having gone to an event the weekend with the Civil, English Civil War Society, it was really quite refreshing to see the living history element was massive in comparison to the number of people who are like plastic camping or just turning out for, you know, a little drill display. That seems to kind of be on the, on the move now, which is nice. But yeah, for me, it's going to be, generally speaking, the typical... British soldier, Pakistani soldier, is misrepresented more often than not. Whether it's I don't know English Civil War or um, you know, Iraq Afghan, it's very rare to find that genuine, authentic impression. Really. So from uh, from Mel as well, we have another question: What weapon changed the course of warfare for all time? Oh, this is a very this is a very divided question. I think it depending on which way you look at it. Mm. Uh, and so I know we, we've got three heads of sheds here who all have three time periods of interest. So it's going to be interesting hearing each uh, each response. But I'm going to fire this straight broadside straight over to Peter. I'm going to say the machine gun. <laughs> to be quite honest, um, 
yeah, the machine gun. If I go Gatling gun to machine gun, um, or even the, actually the Gatling gun, because yeah, that just revolutionised warfare and how tactics were done. Um, you know, tactics today all, all because of automatic weapons. So I think the arrival of the machine gun is the one for me that changed warfare as we know it. That would have been my second shout. But my my first one is going to be the innovation of rather well, handgun or handgun. Uh, the first u- real use of like black powder, for instance, as um, you know, a weapon. Obviously, going back centuries there, but I think that was a real, real turning point that does essentially lead us to where we are today. So that kind of muzzle loading handgun would be the one for me, using black powder. Well, what I'm... are you going for then, Danny? Well, I'm going to be cheeky and have two because I can. First, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pick on the the mechanization and the manufacture of chemical weapons during the First World War. The proper full scale industrial manufacture, rather than just an army having a go, because that again has changed how armies and wars have changed over this uh, since then, especially now with the nuclear threat, as it were. And the second, my second weapon, if I'm going to go specifically for a weapon system. I'm going to go for the Gewehr 41. And my reason why it is the first man-portable semi-automatic weapon. Now, you may think, oh, there was the Bren, there was the Lewis gun, there was the BAR. They still really required a squad of men to maintain. Yes, the BAR could be operated by one man, but you chewed through mags far too quick. The, the Gewehr was really the Gewehr 41 and later the Gewehr 43, which led to the Sturm Gewehr 44, the STG 44. Was really the first man-portable assault rifle, which was semi-automatic, and the Sturmgewehr having the fully automatic function. Very good choices. Very good choices. Mm-hmm. Indeed. See, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't quite expecting that from you either, Danny. I was—I thought you was going to come out with something very technical. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd pull something back after you talking about William of Oranges or Saturn Tangerines or whatever his name was. <laughs> right. So our next question comes from um, actually a member of the Living History UK crew, which is JR. Um, JR's question is... I hope this has been vetted. <laughs> yes, well, I've put it through the scent, so it's fine. Thank you, <laughs> I, I had my red pen out. <laughs> uh, for its time and against its contemporaries, what's been the best British main firearm? Nice and easy. Straight in there off the bat. Short magazine, Lee Enfield. Martini Henry. Oh. Two very good ones, and ones I'd have gone to at the, at the, <laughs> at I, the I top tra- of my I, head. I challenged the Lee Enfield at the time because the Mauser action was superior to the Lee Enfield action when it first came out. Mm. Um, so, best British weapon. Um, you could go really different, Pete, and say the 1771 pattern rifle. <laughs> I could. I could do that. I could Though do it's not that. mine. <laughs> I could do that. Uh, I was actually, you know what? I was actually, I was actually, uh, oh, oh, this is a hard one now because you've both done obvious ones. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, 
KFS. KFS. <laughs> um, doom, 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 doom. Oh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah you, I bet you can, you can hear the cogs going. <laughs> grinding. <laughs> grinding. Uh, I, uh, you know what? You know what? You, you know what? As you two have done bloody easy ones, I am as well. I'm going with the SLR. Good choice. Good choice. Oh, I think it's an exquisite choice. Right arm of the free world. <laughs> oh, you're not saying that. <laughs> That's all right. I took that one for free. <laughs> Irritation is the better form of flattery, Daniel. <laughs> Would you go for EM2? If you want to really be obscure, obscure firearms, go for the EM2 with that with that 6.5, whatever silly weird caliber they came out, which is the forerunner to the SE80. Oh, everyone... yeah, that thing, yeah. Weird... No, I'm going, no, I'm going, because he said ish, oh, it was issue weapon, weren't it? Or main weapon. But yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. with. I'm going with the SLR. I think I think the, the SLR was a very sound weapon. It's just unfortunately, it didn't have an automatic function. Just you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> it didn't go full auto like the FN did. Um, I think that was the only drawback of it. But it's still a very, very good rifle. And I think even today, it wouldn't look out of place on a battlefield, even today's standards. I don't think. My, my argument would be with the new DMR they brought in a few years ago, the designated marksmanship rifle. That is a seven six two self loading rifle, isn't it? Not just an SLR with a fa- fancy kit on it. Yeah, pretty much in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a pimped, a pimped up SLR. My SLR. <laughs> yeah, that's what I should have done. I should have just bought all the old SLRs out of storage, or just remade them and just go. There you go. Here's your rifle. <laughs> We're bringing back a classic. <laughs> oh, sorry, we can't. We sold them all to Africa. <laughs> we sold all our SLRs and Sterlings and spare GPMGs to Sierra Leone just before the Civil War. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's I think that's my good safe sound choice is the SLR. Very good, very mm. good, sturdy rifle. Yeah, I think I think they're all good choices. I mean, I could and, be and much loved by the men that used them as well. Well, still is, yeah, still is. Frequently, you'll hear yeah, people speak, saying, "Yeah, speak to the blokes who used SLRs, and they went from that transition period of SLR to SA80. They're like, no SLR every time." Mm. Absolutely, but I could also throw into the mix the brown best, of course. You know, much like every other weapon that was being used at the time, but the that was going to be my that, that was what I was going to come out with. Believe it or not, I was going. Should I say brown best? Should I say <laughs> brown best? I'm like, no, 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 I yeah. won't say brown best. Um, yeah, because it was going to be if I hadn't said SLI, it was going to be brown best or Enfield rifle musket. It was going to be that, 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 that was the, that was the avenue I was going to go down for black powder. But brown vest would actually be a good a good choice, as that is the weapon that carved an empire in the early days. I think the easiest way to just say is that all of the weapons of firearms used, you know, by and large in the British Army since inception have been really, really good, except for the SA eighty. Oh. Next question, <laughs> which is from <laughs> History Collector. Um, not sure where that's originated from, but it's one of our social media outlets. And it's a nice and simple question. Um, Danny, when's your next event? Well, our next event is actually going to be next weekend, the 15th and 16th of July. And we're going to be over at the Black Country Living Museum, representing members of 1SAS, 
just prior to D-Day. So obviously next year being the 80th anniversary of Operation Overlord, when we'll be representing the behind the lines activities, which gets largely forgotten, I believe, within the uh, living history scene. But you come and see us and our dutiful partners in crime, that being Les Para, and we'll be doing uh, representing troopers, but also having a selection of jeeps uh, and other airborne equipment. And I shall be joined there that weekend by the ever dutiful Peter Chuckles and the and and the large majority. But unfortunately, Stephen is stuck in work, I believe. So when's your next event, Steve? Yeah, sadly unable to attend uh, for work reasons at Black Country, which is a shame because I'm a member of the Black Country Museum and it's on my doorstep. I love going, uh, but unfortunately I can't go. But my next event will be over the weekend of the 12th and 13th of August. And that's going to be at Middleton Hall, which is just outside Tamworth. We're doing a Civil War weekend. Uh, if you're in the area and you've really got nothing better to do, then do pop down and we can bore you to death about the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Yeah, so as Danny's already mentioned, my next event will be Black Country Museum. I'm very looking forward to it. It's going to be glorious. I can't wait. I'm very excited. So the next question we've got in is from Josh Champion. Champion. You're not uh, related to Phil Champion, are you? And the question is, have you ever heard of that paratrooper TV series that never got to the screen? Now I'm I'm thinking that you're representing it's World War Two paratrooper rather than the the 1980s para TV documentary. Uh, so I personally I've never never seen it yourselves, Pete. No, never never heard of it. Because when I saw the question, I thought it was going to be like like an 80s documentary. Um, but no, I've uh, it says TV series, so. That's what makes me think, is it like done in like the 80s or even like the 60s or something like that? Um, but the thing is, the amount of document TV series is about the paras called Paratrooper. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really narrow it down a little bit. You know what I mean? If it, Give us a date. That would give us a clue. If you could give us a time frame of when it was actually um, produced, we could uh, help you out a bit. But that's... Uh, that's like saying, look for this needle in this stack of needles. <laughs> well, I know what series he is talking about. And I'm surprised you don't know, Pete, because you were on it, as was I. We were filming on it only a few years ago. Oh, that. That wasn't. Oh, that. Oh, that. That paratrooper. Yeah, that folded, didn't it? Yeah, it's that very same paratrooper. So. It was the sort of crowdfunded series that they put together. Toby Bakari was in it. Um, no one knows probably who he is, but he was the guy who was on um, Death in Paradise as one yeah, of the nice uh, officers. Lad, actually. Really nice guy. Really nice mm. guy. Um, I played a dead body in one scene. I did some very fine acting in that. I was um, a brain gunner. Pete was a brain gunner. We've got some photos, actually. In fact, I think we ought we to have, use the we've photo. Got, we've got for the couple. Cover. we got the two of us doing a selfie. I know that. Hmm. I don't know what other ones we got. I know that one because I've got I've got that one because I took that one plus <laughs> two. Um, I made it to the poster. So when they did their like concept poster for it, yeah. Um, you see my back where I'm kneeling down. <laughs> you see me back. Your best side. Uh, yeah, your best side. Um, oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, you know what? It completely ran me mind that did what he was actually on about. But yeah. Um, it is, it's a crying shame because Lance, the mm. director, 
he was putting so much passion and energy into that and really nice bloke to talk to because he chatted to us quite a few times when we were there mm. um and it because um, we sort of like sort of inadvertently sort of became um sort of like assisting in like historical advising at the same time because <laughs> yes, yeah. like, we turned up and like the actors and the other like extras were like getting dressed up we're like no don't wear it like this you wear it like that and then it was sort of like on the spot we sort of got promoted to historical advisors <laughs> <laughs> unofficially yeah. promoted and that was that um but yeah what a cracking team absolute mm. cracking team um that was working with lance um like i said lance was putting so much into it uh, I, you know, and when I found out it had fallen through, I was so gutted for him, so gutted because that <clears> would have <throat> been a cracking little series. That would have been, and it wouldn't have been like you know some, you know, like some budget films that you see where like you can tell it's a budget film. He was actually making it with um, decent cameras and all the rest. So actually the quality of it the film quality would have been no different to band of brothers as in film quality and obviously acting quality would have been absolutely brilliant as well but yeah i'm just so gutted that it you know i'm just so gutted for him that it just didn't come through because he was originally doing pegasus bridge that's what he was doing to start off with he was doing the story of pegasus bridge and then that fell through and then he then came up with the concept of paratrooper instead and then obviously that Never, um, I never happened, but shame, absolute crying shame because it was great to be part of that project. Um, I was actually, you know, one of the projects I've been part of while gone, you know, what we're we're doing something here, um, uh, especially when we got unofficially promoted on the spot as well. <laughs> so it's like that's all that sort of yeah. geared me up a little bit, you know, like, hmm. like doing like when we go and do the acting, not acting job, but the extras jobs and all that sort of stuff. We're there, we do, we do what we're told, we do this and we do that. But then, but like, you know, like, you know, for them to come up to us and go, right, you two, you're now our advisors for this. <laughs> so <laughs> start advising hmm. <laughs> and. I did two lots of filming for that, and it was it was really good. Like the concepts, like you touched on, was brilliant. It would have it would have sold. People would have watched it. It would have been the British version of Band of Brothers. It had a great concepts, really bought into that. And it's, it is a real shame it didn't make the screen. And I think the, the sort of cusp of it is that it just ran out of funding. It didn't have the funding in place. I know Lance tried his best to get it. Couldn't I think lockdown it. done it for him. I think. I think it's mm. one of these lockdown things where you know lockdown just killed it. I think. I think if lockdown hadn't have happened, yeah, I think that was the final nail in the coffin. Mm. Was lockdown, um, and I don't think he's he bought the book out. So he's yeah. he's bought he's bought the book out about the series. I think it's the scripts. I think because he's he's already said that he's not going to make it. You know he's he's getting on in years now, mm. um, and for him to go through all that stress again, he 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 just he just said oh, I just couldn't deal with that having to go through all that stress again. So yeah. he has actually published a book of the script. So um, I should buy that really because I was one mm. of the casted roles in that. David Pembury. Yeah. Ah, so yeah, so he's uh, yeah, so he has published the script. I I believe it's the whole script. Um, I'm I'm sure that's called Paratrooper. I think. Um, but yeah, 
But yeah, so that's what he did. He decided to put the script and and a little bit about the fundraiser. I think he's done like, so I've not got it or read it myself. I, I just know that he's produced the book. Um, I think it's a bit about, you know, the fundraising, the concept of the idea and the script is is in there because he said like I wasn't I'm not going to be able to bring this project to screen now so the only way I can actually bring this to the public light is to publish the script and I think that's what he's done. And our next question comes in from another member of the Living History UK crew, Dave Sill, and his question is. If you could do any period in history, what would it be? And not one you've done already. Mm. Danny, Danny, are you there? <laughs> Broadsword oh, calling like... Danny boy. Broadsword calling Danny boy. Oh, I was deep in <laughs> contemplation of what, what I, I would like to do. <laughs> I, I, would, I would like to one day, well, if time, space, money, uh, ability allows, I'd love to do Fleming's Regiment at Culloden. Um, just because of the connection with the 36th of foot, latterly the Herefordshire Regiment. Um, but again, with, with that, it, it's, it's the custom making of everything, the time, space. It, it's, on a, it's on a distant, distant back. I bought the lace and that's about it, really. So that's for me. I'd like to do Fleming's Regiment at Culloden. How about you, Peter? American Civil War. Uh, that's what I would do. Um, I've I've been interested in the American Civil War since I was probably fourteen, um, but just never gone and done it. Living history wise, I just find it a very interesting war. Um, obviously, from the, like the, mainly from the perspective of the soldier, because that's where I that's that's the avenue I always go down with with military history. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a very interesting war. And yeah, so yeah, um, very a very interesting period for me. I just find it very very fascinating. So yeah, so I would do American Civil War. That's what I would do. Both notable periods of time to cover. Um, hmm, what would I do? That's a question. I got that many different time periods. I like my timeline stuff, and I'd be although I dabbled it in the past, and I didn't really enjoy it at the time. I wouldn't mind doing something to do with um, something medieval, certainly either Hundred Years' War, um, kind of thinking maybe Action Corps, something like that would be quite cool, and or Wars of the Roses. I quite like the, um, the sort of longbowman impression. I'd, I'd quite enjoy doing that. I'd, I've always enjoyed archery. In fact, fun little fact, uh, myself, Bristol, and Chuckles were undertaking archery uh, children's archery that must be said at Delapray the weekend that was quite fun uh, hit the bullseye twice with those little suction cup arrows that was good fun but yeah joking apart I think did you I'll... win anything <laughs> no nothing not, not well, a single well, thing I don't even know why you bothered then well that's that's what we thought as well <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was terrible you made Chuckles happy though yeah I was just going to say Chuckles enjoyed himself so that's, that's, that's the main thing he had a smile on his face anyway could have been wind um, but yeah I wouldn't mind doing a long Bowman's impression for yeah, sort of Agincourt era and or Wars the Roads. I think that'd be quite appealing. So a question in from one of our great TikTok followers, Ches over there on TikTok. And her question is, my question is, when are you boys coming over to Guernsey? We have lots of German stuff to show you and maybe take a spin in my Jeep. Now, I'd love to go over to Jersey, Guernsey and Sark. Don't forget the little island. 
because there's a lot of German occupation history there, and also the struggle of the iron occupation. And I'd like to take my Jeep there as well one day. Maybe we can form a little convoy and go around the island a couple of times. How about you, Steve? I'd love to go there sooner rather than later. It massively appeals to me going to the Channel Islands. Um, and, to, and yeah, you touched on it, to know that they were, you know, sort of, well, they were occupied by, you know, the Germans during the Second World War. That's just gives you so many concrete bunkers to go and explore, which makes me rather excited. And maybe we could uh, sort of rope fly UK in to take us over at some point. That would be uh, that would make life a little bit easier. But so uh, yeah, sooner rather than later, I'd hope. But realistically, it's probably going to be next year. I should think now we've got a busy lineup, work and life gets in the way of fun. But uh, Pete, what are you saying? I would love, I would love to go over. Um... It's uh, it's a period of history that people don't really talk about, uh, you know, the German occupation of the Channel Islands. Um, and I think that could also potentially, if we manage to get over there, I know we don't try and mix business with pleasure, but, you know, maybe try and do like a, a short documentary while we're out there about it in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah, I, I, I would like to go over. Uh, somewhere I've never been. I think it'd be interesting even to see the concrete as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, and mainly for me as well is I was fortunate once to actually bump into a German veteran who was on uh, the Channel Islands. I think he was on Guernsey, I think. I think he was on Guernsey. Um, yeah, and it was just a pure chance meeting, it was. And uh, I was actually doing poppy selling. I was about what? 17 17 18 yeah it's about 17 or 18 at the time um i was it was the build up to remembrance sunday and i was doing poppy collecting outside the town hall and uh and i was dressed in world war ii kit uh i was dressed you know sort of in walking out dress sort of thing looking very presentable i have to say and and this this old this this old boy just kept on sort of looking at me from across the way and i'm thinking he keeps looking he keeps sort of glancing over at me and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna if he's still there when I when I get you know when the swap over happens, I'm gonna walk over to him and have and see if he's all right, sort of thing. Um, and literally, as I thought that, they go, "All oh, right, you know, give yourself 10, 15 minutes." I'm like, "Okay, brilliant." Um, and I walked over to the old boy. I said, "How are you doing? You're all right?" And he he said, "Oh, how are you doing?" He, so when he started talking, it was an English accent, but there was. There was something not right about his accent. There was there, there was a definite twang there, and um, and he turned around to me. I was, he goes, "Oh, he goes, I'm I'm sorry to say, I didn't wear your uniform during the war." <laughs> I was like, "All right." I was like, "Okay." I was, well, I was like, "What team was you batting for?" <laughs> he goes, "Oh, he goes, I was uh, German infantry. I was, I was Wehrmacht." Oh, and were you? And and he goes, "Yeah, yeah," because I was in the Wehrmacht. And uh, yeah, and we ended up chatting for about half an hour or so. Um, but he fought on the Russian front. Uh, that's where he, he got conscripted when he was 17, sent up to the Russian front. They left the Russian front to go to the Channel Islands. And he was saying to me is that the blokes who were there were the blokes who originally landed in 1940. So they're replacing them. He said they're only like a company strength that ended up going there or a couple of companies because the rest of his battalion were on the mainland and the rest of his battalion were at Omaha Beach. So they had quite a good like good little posting on the Channel Islands. Like, well, well, after the 6th of June, it was a very good posting in a sense. 
um yeah and he and he started chatting and uh and he was saying about them having to be you know being starved out and the locals you know helping them out with like red cross food parcels and things like that and when the british then finally did arrive um he said yeah we marched down he said um our commander gathers us gathered us all up and we literally as soon as we saw the boat come in we marched straight down to the, straight down to the quay and handed ourselves in um, and then he ended up in a prisoner of war camp in oxford and uh or by oxford i should say and he and because he wasn't SS or anything like that, he's just a normal Vermont conscript. They put him onto farm work. And being where I am back in the day, all those little villages dotting around my town is it's very agricultural around here. And he ended up going onto one of these farms and met a local girl, and that was it. He he never went back, and he didn't want to go back because the part of Germany he actually come from Berlin, and the part of where he came from uh, was it had been taken over by the Russians and he didn't want to go back. And he managed to, and because he married a British girl, meant he didn't need to, he, you know, he wasn't going to be uh, deported back to Germany. He said he only ever went back to Germany once. He said that was in the 1970s. And he said, I had a hell of a time trying to get through Checkpoint Charlie because they couldn't understand why I couldn't really speak German anymore, but I still had a German passport. <laughs> but yeah, what a fascinating bloke. And that was literally the first and only time I ever met him. But yeah, and after that, I was like, you know what? I wouldn't mind having a look round Guernsey, or you know, having a little look round there because it's it's something that is very seldom spoken about. Sorry, I went on to a tangent and a waffle. Then, <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, mate. It's uh, you know, it is an amazing, uh, amazing place. You know, the Channel Islands. We do need to get there at some point. It will happen. Rest assured. All in all, in due course. But that does bring us to the end of this uh, mammoth podcast episode thanks everyone who sent questions in really appreciate it uh there've been some fantastic questions in there we have had to filter some out of course naturally we can't answer them all but we will strive to do another one of these similar style podcasts before we hit the big 100 which is only in what 15 16 episodes time if my maths is still workable but thanks guys for listening make sure you uh, leave us a review on spotify or on apple podcasts and share it with uh, friends neighbors their pets and everyone else. Um, you know, the more people that listen, the better. We just love talking about history and hopefully you guys enjoy it too. But for myself, Danny and Pete, until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.